Amen. Uh, so, in a, in a poll that's a little bit old now, it's almost 10 years old, it was found that 70 to 75% of us, not us here, but us as a population, believe in Satan and demons. So there's probably about a quarter of the room, uh, statistically, that would say, ah, I'm not quite sure. And I would just say, I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning. And, and I hope that this morning is more informative about who Satan and what demons really are. More than 50% of the population, didn't give a really great number, but more than 50% of the population, according to this survey, also believes in ghosts and the spiritual realm. And here's the most striking thing is that when you actually move out of the quantitative data and get into qualitative studies, almost everyone that you talk to about a ghost or spiritual encounter will say that they think that they probably had one. So it doesn't take much to convince people that this realm, the spiritual realm is not only real out there, but is also real like in our house, in the recesses of our living places, in, in the closets, in the place that we don't want to go into when the lights go out. So this week, we're going to talk about them. Next week, Brian is going to speak about the occult. Um, so come back for that. And, it, and it's not just to inform you about it. It's to inform um, the other side of the occult as well and what we, what we believe. And what I want to do this morning um, is I want to look at the Bible. Some of you might be here and you don't believe in the Bible. And I would say I, I was once there also. Uh, most of us in this room were once there also. Not all of us had the opportunity to just full on believe that the Bible has always been from God, inspired every word, right? So I would just invite you into this this morning and maybe you're gonna need to like take your imagination caps and put them on and imagine what if this were true? What if, this, what if these were the things that were actually going on around me? I want to start with a quote by, by C.S. Lewis. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what we don't want to do is be obsessed and we don't want to be ignorant. So we're going to try and hit that middle track this morning. And, and I want to start out by saying that this is a bit heavy. If you feel that this is a bit heavy, welcome. I just want to also let you into my reality. Driving here this morning, uh, my wife Jess is like, so how are you feeling? I'm like, not great. And she's like, well, why? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I think that it has something to do with what I'm going to speak about. And, and she's like, oh, I'd love to pray for you. What should I pray for you for? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know. This is, this is heavy. I've been reading books about Satan, demons, ghosts, just for one week. And it's like, I, I feel a little bit of the weightiness. And some of you are continuing to walk in this today. And, and this is just normal for you. That's the way that you always feel. And you attribute it to not enough sleep or maybe mental illness or maybe, and, and that might be true. Maybe I need to eat better. Maybe I need to take more medication. Maybe I need to run more. Maybe it, like all those things might be true. But maybe there's another reality that you've never considered and it is weighty. It is weighty. So we're gonna start off by talking about the Satan, 
Why do I say the Satan? Because Satan isn't his name. The Satan is a title of this being that we're gonna talk about. Now, as a culture, we have all kinds of ideas about who this Satan is. Last night, Saturday Night Live did a skit. I can't stay up that late on a Saturday night to watch it, but I watched the clips early Sunday morning as I'm preparing to preach, right? That's some inspiration. And uh, what I saw uh, from last night was that there was a sketch that took place where Satan was there, and he wanted the lawyer that was overseeing Trump's team to be there because they've never met someone so evil. And so the way that the, now I'm not going to get into that this morning, okay? But what I want to highlight is the way that they portrayed Satan is the way that many of us think about him. Now, I'm not Brian Stegner. Next week, you'll get all kinds of funny pictures, then you'll laugh and whatever. I, I'm not that clever. Um, but here's, here's what we think of when we think of Satan. He's definitely red. Usually he has some horns or he's trying to conceal them somehow. That he's the king, like he's in charge of hell. He has a pitchfork. We're not quite sure what he wants to do with that yet, but it's there. He's distant from my personal life, but we know that he wants to inflict evil. And the most sadistic people in life for sure are his homeboys or homegirls. That's kind of what we think of when we think of Satan. And that's how Saturday Night Live portrayed him last night. Now, are those realistic? I would say some of them are and some of them might not be. So what does the Bible have to say? In the Old Testament, the Bible's broken up into two sections. Old Testament, uh, from creation to about 400 years before Jesus coming. And that's Old Testament. New Testament is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus till about year 92, 93. Some letters, history, some prophetic things, apocalyptic literature. But it's focused on the first century and then talking about how to be followers of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, there are seven Old Testament books that specifically speak about this being. There are 29 mentions in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's the thing. All of us believe in Jesus, I would assume. I've never met anyone that doesn't believe in the historical Jesus. That might happen. You might be here, and I've never met you. I'd love to meet you after. But everyone believes that Jesus existed, and many believe that most of the words in the Bible are actually true from Jesus. We just think that we've misinterpreted how we're supposed to apply them. Well, Jesus spoke 25 times of a real, literal, the Satan. Jesus wasn't using allegory. He wasn't getting cute with his literary features. Real, literary, real, real life, the Satan. 25 times. And then every New Testament writer has written about this being. So who is he? Who is he? Not according to Saturday Night Live. Who is he according to the Bible? And the first place that we see him is in the third chapter of Genesis. Now, if you don't have a Bible as you're leaving today, please take one. I'm going to put all the verses up here on the screen for you. Genesis 3.1 says this. Now the serpent, and I put what that word is, Nahash, Now the serpent, or now the Nahash was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I'm not going to get into all of this because we've been dealing with this over the past few weeks. So you can go back and listen to these sermons if if you'd like. But I want to focus in on that word Nahash for a little bit. Now I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. So I'm very dependent on Hebrew scholars. 
So in getting ready for this week, I was reading a lot, I was listening to a lot, I was researching a lot, and, and this is kind of a new teaching or a new understanding for me about this serpent, this Nahash. So I'm going to try my best to present it as well as I understand it, but I'm still growing in this. Now, this word Nahash can have three different meanings. It can mean serpent, it can mean diviner, or it can mean shining one. And actually, in one of the translations, it doesn't say serpent, it says shining one. Now, the shining one was more crafty than any other beast of the field. So it's more than just a, a snake. It's more than just a serpent. And people way smarter than me, I think Michael Heiser is one of the guys, he says actually all three of these meanings are appropriate here. Serpent, shining one, diviner. And we've always thought, maybe, maybe if you're like me, you've always thought of this as just being like the snake that, that pulls up in the garden, like stands up and, and starts speaking and that Eve sees no problem with that. Now maybe animals talked, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But what this verse says is that this being was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. What it doesn't say was that this serpent was a beast of the field. It says now this being, this Nahash was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. So it takes beasts of the field and it puts the Nahash above them. That this being is, is smarter, is more clever, more crafty. We find out that this Nahash is actually created a spiritual being. That when this Nahash was made, it was made good. It wasn't made evil, primarily, at the beginning, at the outset. It was made good. This Nahash had a personality, which meant it had an intellect. He had an intellect and an emotion and a will. And most likely, this blew my mind, most likely, this being was actually a seraphim. So a, a seraphim would have been an angelic winged creature. So it's, it's this angel that looks like a snake with wings, but, but snakes were revered as beautiful and wonderful in the ancient world and as much wisdom. And so as this snake is, is, is being brought to, to Eve, it's, maybe it's not just a snake. Maybe this is one of God's angelic beings that he made. And so when Eve doesn't respond like, ah, a talking snake, it's because she knew. She knew of the seraphim. He had already spent time in the garden. There were also cherubim, other angelic beings, in the garden with Adam and Eve. So maybe this is why she wasn't so startled. So what happens? Who is he? Well, the Nahash is this divine spiritual being what happened? Well, then Nahash speaks with, with Eve. And since she's, she's so familiar, potentially, with this being, she wouldn't suspect bad intent at all. She wouldn't suspect that he would be trying to betray her and lead her away. But that's exactly what he does. And we looked at that in depth last week, the evil of this action so this Nahash leads her astray. And then God brings a curse onto the woman, the man, the earth. But he also brings a curse onto this Nahash. And we see this in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, to the Nahash, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this this being, this angelic being is now cast down and, and cursed. Maybe, I'm not saying this for sure, I don't know. The Bible's not really clear, but maybe this is when the Satan is actually cursed. Maybe there wasn't this great fall before that. Maybe this is when it actually takes place. We're not quite sure exactly. But we, what we know is that the curse is that this Nahash was going to be cast onto its belly and that this Nahash was going to eat dust. Now, snakes, serpents don't eat dust. So this isn't necessarily a literal thing. This, this eating dust is one of being cast down. Your position is no longer that you're part of the divine council, that you're enjoying and eating and feasting on the glory of God and being in his presence. But now you're going to eat death. Now you're going to crawl on the earth. You're going to take a humble posture. No longer are you going to be proud and ready to strike. You're going to be humbled in your curse. Now this being, if this is really true, if he was a seraphim, if he was an angelic being and spent time in the presence of the glory of God, why would he ever rebel? Like he got to, he got to tan, right? If seraphim tan, he got to tan on the glory of God. He got to bask in pure goodness and righteousness and goodness. Why would he ever rebel? Well, most scholars agree that two passages, though maybe not speaking specifically about who this being was, point to his heart, point to the reasons why he did this. So let's look at both of them. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. This is actually speaking about a human leader, but then in the middle of it, Isaiah kind of gets strange, and it seems like he's talking about someone else. And maybe he's talking about this Nahash. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so if this is really about the Satan, then what was going on in his heart is that I am going to be better than God. I've been hanging around God's stuff. I think I can do it better. Don't you love it if you have kids when your kids say that to you? Now, they don't really say that to you. They say it with their actions. I think I know better. We're like talking through some discipline with one of the kids and then another kid steps in. He's like, well, I think you should do this. Like, shut up, leave. Like, you have no idea. I will ascend to the mountain. I will be higher than my mom and dad. I will be higher than the most high God. Let me give you one more. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are a signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, the king of Tyre was not in Eden. So it seems like in the middle of this thing about the king, this leader that Ezekiel goes out to talk about someone else. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, a diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Beautiful, beautiful, shining one. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So somehow, whether it's in the garden at a different time, this great spiritual being, this shining one, diviner, seraphim, was cast out of the presence of God, cast out of the counsel of God, and he was cursed forever. So you have to hear this as we're gonna talk about the Satan, is that he has been cursed forever. He has no redemption song. Bob Marley is a dude across the street from the theater as you walk in. He's always singing Bob Marley songs, all right? Redemption song, beautiful, but there's no Bob Marley song that the Satan can actually sing. There's no redemption for him. He is cursed forever. There's no way back in. There's no way back in. Matthew 25, a book in the New Testament tells us, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's an eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels, demons. And Jesus spoke about this as a real place and real beings. And some of you are here and you don't believe that he's real. You don't believe that, that there's any influence or influencer of evil. You don't believe that there's someone that's out to get you. And so that's what I want to speak about now. We'll talk about more of the curse later. But what does this Nahash, what does this the Satan do? Well, we learn a lot about someone by their name. People ask me all the time, what does Dwight mean? I'm like, I, I literally have no idea. No idea. Well, why did your parents name you that? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Just have no clue. I, and I'm like, ah, oh, there's a right fielder for the Red Sox. I like to pull that one out. And they're like, oh, Dwight Eisenhower. I'm like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. But you can tell, you usually can tell a lot about someone by their name and why they were named that. So here's his names. The devil. The devil. Devil means to, to throw. To throw accusations. To throw slander. To, to, to throw things on us. Tempter. In Genesis 3, he tempts Adam and Eve. In Matthew 4, which Trenton read for us earlier, he tempts Jesus, the dragon. The dragon. That's not a Bruce Lee thing. It's not a good thing. He's a dragon. He's the serpent that is out to destroy the evil one. Beelzebul. That means Lord of Filth. Not a nice name. Prince. Prince of the power of the air. The air we breathe in sometimes, the darkness that we feel, he's the prince over that. The God of this world. Now, that's not the sovereign Lord over everything. World doesn't mean like the globe. It means the anti-God system that's been set up. He's, he's the God over that. He's overseeing that to make sure it continues with every generation. And then he's the Satan. He's the adversary. He's the adversary, and here's what that means. If he's for anything, okay, I'm trying to make a positive here. 
if he's for anything, he's for being against God and what is good. So said in a negative fashion, which it should be said in, the adversary is that he's against God and anything that is good. Anything that God has said, this has value. He says, I want to take it away. This has meaning. He says, I want to suck it out. This has purpose. He says, I want to distort that. This is what the adversary means. And here's the reality. Is that he wants to destroy you. He wants nothing more than to destroy you. And this is where it's weighty. This is where it's weighty. And some of us need to come away from our little fable idea of the Satan and we need to reel it in and actually believe the biblical account of who he is. Because my fear is that some of you are in great bondage to him and you don't even believe he exists. You're a slave to him and his desires, but you think that you're just carpe dieming it. You're just seizing the day. You're just making it work. And he actually is playing you like a marionette. And you think you're the captain of your own ship. Here's what he does. He has a full-time job. And look at what it is. Peter writes to the Christians in the first century, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, okay, that's personal. Your adversary, it's not just the adversary, but your adversary. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls. Prowls is a hunting term. Like he is hunting, he is stalking you. I grew up hunting with my dad and we would track deer. My dad is one of the most well-known deer trackers. You know, random information, there you go. But when there's no snow, it's hard to track a deer. Though my dad does it somehow. So I, I didn't do that, but I would stalk a deer. And so I moved through the forest without making a noise. Without making a noise. And so when you come across the deer and, and you shoot, or I shot a bear one time and the bear had no idea that I was there, but I was in his home. I was in his territory, but I stalked him. I was prowling like a little hunter, right? 14. This is what he does. He's in your home. He's in your stuff. He's prowling around and you have no idea. And what does he want to do? He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not just take a little bit and just want to bite. He wants to eat all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your seat of affections. And, and we forget that. We forget that. There's a real lion living in our midst, and we forget it. Now, if I go to Africa on a safari, I'm not going to forget that there might be a lion there. I'm going to stay in the truck all times, guaranteed. I'm not going to pretend to be brave in that moment. If you tell me lions are around here, I'm stuck. And like, I'm ready to, to make you go faster. But yet we forget that we're in this safari. 
we forget because we're just so comfy cozy. We're so used to it. We're just so used to the way that, that life works that we forget that he is here. And he is working a strategy. You gotta hear this. He's working a strategy to bring you down. Maybe you've watched this game called American football. Some of you don't like it. It doesn't matter to me. Here's the illustration. That there are coaches on the sideline. A play happens real quick. And then you see guys with like sheets and they're holding it over their mouth because people can read lips and stuff. So they're holding over their mouths and they're calling a play, right? They're calling a play to the quarterback that he's going to do. And then the other guy's like making signs to the defense of what they're going to do if like things happen. It gets crazy if you actually get to watch them. Crazy signs. This is what the enemy is doing. He's calling plays against you all the time. He's not sitting back hoping that maybe you might fall into something one day. He's pursuing you. I read a book called The Gospel According to Satan this past week, and, and it's actually by a Christian author. Okay, it's not that dark. It's exposing the lies of Satan. And uh, Jared Wilson is the author, and he tells about this uh, time where his, his mentor, Ray, sat down with him, and he said, Ray looked me in the eyes and said, Jared, did you know that the enemy has a file drawer on you? He knows your likes. He knows your dislikes. He knows your disagreements with your wife. He knows how you can be tempted. He knows the times that you're most weak. Like he knows all that stuff. There's no privacy laws with him. He's got it all. And he's working a plan to bring you down. Now, how does he work that plan? Well, first off, he lies to us. Look at what Jesus said about him. This is, a, this is an amazing text I wish we could explore in all of its context right now, but we can't. Jesus is talking to religious leaders who are supposed to be representing God, and he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is what he does. He just lies to you. And you know what the best lies are? The ones that are almost true. The best lies are the ones that are almost true. Or they hold 90% truth. It's just that like one or two words in that phrase. You're like, wait, what? It's like, no, no, no. Don't worry about those words. Think about the whole complete thought. Let me just give you one of them because we don't have enough time to go through a lot. One of them, and I hear it in the church is that God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. How could God do that? Or how could God let that happen? I know that God just wants me to be happy. There's a few problems with it. First is that word just. God did not make everything just for you. It's not all about you. We need to step back from our self-absorbed worldview. God doesn't just want for you to be happy. Does he want for you to be happy? Yes, but not a fickle happiness that's dependent on circumstances, but a joy that's deeply rooted in him. See, happiness is, is dependent on circumstances. Joy isn't. Joy is that constant hum that's going on when bad things are happening. One of my favorite uh, genres of scripture, uh, not scripture, genres of literature to read um, is the 
the slavery movement where people are being freed and emancipated in the Underground Railroad and hearing about the songs that people would sing all day as they're being beaten, as they've been enslaved against their will, they're singing the glories of God. And, and as some slaves show in, inside, of that, um, inside of some of the literature, it's like the joy is bubbling up. They're not happy. Life is really bad, but there's joy. See, God doesn't just want us to be happy. Satan does. That's actually his lie. Look at what Jared Wilson writes. The devil would be perfectly satisfied if we were perfectly satisfied apart from the holiness of God. He will do whatever it takes to get us interested ultimately in our own happiness. He doesn't care how we feel so long as we're unrighteous. The devil would love for you to be perfectly happy so long as you are not holy. He knows happily unholy people rob glory from God and go to hell. God just wants me to be happy is a lie. If we have more time, I would give you more. But here's the idea. When the enemy lies to you, he gives you a window of opportunity. Look at what life could be like out there. And then after you go out there and do it, he holds up a mirror and says, you are disgusting. He lures you and then accuses you. This is what he does. You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure all of us have experienced that recently, that we've been lured into something we thought was gonna show so much potential and then we get there and we just feel condemned and shame and guilt. He'll lure you into to sex and then call you a slut. He'll lure you into doing good. And then when you do good, he'll say, that's not good enough. This is what he does. Window of opportunity and then a mirror of shame after you actually do this. You see, his whole aim is to keep you from experiencing lasting joy from experiencing value, meaning, and purpose that you are meant to have. And he wants to keep you in the dark about God. He wants to keep you at an intellectual level about who God is and what he's done so that you never actually consider that God might love you. Let's just talk high level, high society, relevant McGill, great stuff, but if it stays up there, we're never actually gonna get to the point that Jesus came was murdered in our place, died on the cross, shed his blood because he loves me. That's what the enemy wants to keep you away from. How could a good God let Jesus be murdered? He's not a good God. You can't trust him. And Jesus says, you can fully trust him because he's me. I came under my own volition because I'm full of love and that one is a liar. Sometimes we have pictures of Satan as being wanting this deep, dark thing where everyone's like addicted to heroin and sleeping with one another, big orgies on St. Catherine Street, and like that's what Satan City would look like. But I don't know. Because at some point, people would find out, like, ah, this isn't all that great. We're actually harming ourselves. Harmful enjoyment. Listen to this idea by Donald Barnhouse. It's a bit dated. He talks about pool halls, but if the devil took over a city 
it wouldn't be glutted with bars and porn shops and pool halls. Instead, it would be full of well-mannered, tidy pedestrians who are all polite and nice and filled churches where Christ isn't preached. That's what the city of Satan looks like. We all just get along. Why? Because we all just get along. We all just get along. But for what? For what? You see, he wants for you to miss Jesus in the beauty of the gospel. You know what he wants to do? He wants to make church events. He just wants you to come to the thing and then go back and next week come back to the thing. Because what that does is it usurps Jesus' call to go into all the world, lay down your life, and make disciples of me. And the enemy just says, no, go to the thing. You're fine. You're good with God because you did the thing. You read your Bible. I'm, I believe that Satan wants you to read your Bible. Because a lot of us, after reading our Bible, say, you are the man. You read through the Bible in a year this year. I bet a lot of other people didn't. You get up early and pray. You stay up late and pray. You fast. There aren't many people like you. This city is dependent on Christians like you. These are lies from hell. They're not the deep, dark ones we think of. They're not the red horn pitchfork. They're the be a better person. You'll find Satan's book right on the edge of new age, Christianity, and self-help. Somehow it'll fit right in there. Because he just wants you to be about you by your power. And he's got friends to help him do this. I'm going to be quick about this. Demons. Because it's kind of like copy-paste for all this. Demons are fallen angels. When did that happen? Maybe they followed Satan in, in the garden. Maybe that's when the curse happened. Maybe it happened before the garden. We don't know. Revelation 12.4 says this. Maybe it gives us uh, insight into it. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. It's not like literal stars falling, meteorites everywhere. It's angelic beings, okay? The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore a child, he might devour it, he and, and his, his friends. So maybe this is literal that he, about a third of the angels fall. Maybe it's figurative. We really don't know, but what we do know is that there are demons, and they're fallen angels, used to be in the presence of God, no longer, they've been cast down, there's no redemption. Some are free, Ephesians 6.12 tells us, so they're amongst us, and some are bound, Second Peter 2 verse 4 tells us. But here's what they know. Some of you don't believe in demons. Jesus spoke about demons, Jesus cast out demons. Here's what we know about demons, is that they know, fear, and submit to Jesus. Demons know, fear, and submit to Jesus. Some of you hear Jesus and it doesn't impact you all that much. Look what happens with demons. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They shudder at who God is. Jesus in his ministry was casting out demons and look, look what happens. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He didn't want the demons being the evangelists for him because the demons could have given better Christology, understanding of who Christ is, than his disciples. When all the disciples were doubting and worrying, the demons knew. Demons are great theologians. 
They understand what is true. They just refuse to submit to it. They refuse to believe it, which means hearing and doing. But they know that the judgment is coming. In Matthew 8, 29. Behold, they cried out, the demons. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The time of what? The time of judgment, where they're going to be cast away into this eternal fire forever. They know this is true. So what do they do? What are demons out doing on a daily basis? Well, they partner with the Satan, the adversary, to destroy humanity and all that is good. And I want to give you a glimpse into what the Bible says they can do. Not that they have to do. It's not this, this is going to happen. And by the way, I would, I would encourage you all to read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account, but it gives a great understanding of if, if we could get into the minds of a demon that want to get into the minds of us, what would they be thinking about? How might they be trying to lure us? What's that window of opportunity? And what's that mirror of shame? What do they do? Well, they can give strength to destroy. See, God gives strength to, to build up, to make new. Demons give strength to destroy. There's an account of a demoniac who is filled with, it, the Bible tells us thousands of demons were living inside this guy. He, no one could bind him. He had too much strength. He would break the chains. He would break free. And he was out screaming in a graveyard, cutting himself because the pain was so deep. Demons can do that. Demons can inflict illnesses. Now, there's a branch of theology that anytime you get a cold, it's like rebuke the demon of colds. It's like, you know, it might just be a virus. Could be, right? Not everything is necessarily connected to a demon, so don't just run to place a demon there, especially because the Bible doesn't do that. But it does sometimes say that demons inflict illnesses. And oftentimes where we would assume that it's mental illness in the Bible. Now, again, hear me. I'm not saying demons means mental illness or mental illness means demons. But we see this in scripture that demons would come into people and mess with their minds and cause them to live very strange lives. Now, the Bible also says that demons can possess people. But what we don't see anywhere in scripture is that a Christian, a follower of Jesus is possessed. So it seems like a Christian cannot have a spirit, an evil spirit enter into them and live inside of them, namely because the spirit of God dwells inside of us and will never leave. But we can be influenced by them. And here's one of their strongest things with us. They can present another God to us. You're gonna be presented many gods today. You're going to be presented approval, comfort, control, power. You're going to be presented all kinds of gods. Eat a little more to, to take away that feeling. Drink a little more to drown that sorrow. Sleep a little more because this is just going to feel so much better than doing what I need to do. You're going to be presented with so many little things to worship. And watch this in 1 John 5. We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, okay? Power involved in the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in 
his son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God in eternal life. Great theology. And then look at how John ends his little letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because this is the way that the enemy is going to lure you away from who God is and what he's done. He's gonna draw your worship away and he doesn't care what you worship. He just doesn't care as long as it's not the true and living God. Do you get that? It doesn't have to necessarily look evil to be evil. What you worship, your safety and security, if you worship that, that's evil. Because in Christ alone can you have safety and security. If you worship having everyone love you and so you're a people pleaser, that is evil. Because only in Jesus can you find true pleasure and have the only one that matters be pleased with you. That the enemy wants to put these little idols out in front of you and see which one you're gonna latch onto. And lastly, demons inspire false teachers and teaching. There are many religions and teachings that say, man, Jesus was a great, great person. He was definitely a God. He was definitely a prophet. He was definitely a great teacher. But what the Bible says is actually he was the son of God. He's the true and living God. He's the authority. He's actually Yahweh. He's the God of the Bible. Be like, no, 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 that's too far. Well, then we disagree about who Jesus is. And what demons want to do is present 90% right of Jesus and just change that 10%. Because if you get a little bit wrong, then you get the wrong Jesus. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a God. He's not just a teacher. He's the only true and living God. And one of the ways that demons cause us to fear is through ghosts. And I want to be short on this because we could spend a whole sermon on this. There's a huge belief in ghosts. Huge. At uh, Halloween, I went on to NDG Living because we live in NDG and uh, it's a great little community forum. And on Halloween, someone said, hey, random question, but has anyone had any experiences with ghosts? I've never seen a thing blow up so fast. I was trying to read all the comments and I couldn't keep up. So many people were talking about how they have a ghost living in their house, how they've made a deal with a ghost. Um, one of the creepiest ones was a woman talking about how just last week her dog passed away, but she's so comforted because she's, the dog is scratching in her room and breathing on her neck at night to let her know that he's still there. And that's frightening. I don't want to make fun because this isn't something to make fun of. A ghost would be a, a phantom manifestation of a dead being. Now, what professionals in this realm, yes, I read a big book on ghosts this past week, all right? What professionals in this realm would say is that ghosts are aren't yet on the other side. Many believe that ghosts are reincarnated into something else. The other tribe means that they move on to the other side, whatever that means. And so they're just kind of stuck in the in-between. And so the, the constant understanding is that ghosts just want to communicate. They want to tell you something. They're banging the, the, the drawers shut in your kitchen because they just want to tell you something. James Van Prague, he's, he's an impressive ghostologist. or what, I, don't, I don't remember his title. Um, a spirit will attempt in every way possible to communicate and get us to understand its newly relocated existence. These are good ghosts, but 
they also say they're bad ghosts that want to torment us. And here's the suggestions. Now, these are laughable in a sense, but yet these are true beliefs. That these are, this is suggestions that if your house is being haunted, here are things that you could do. You could make a deal with the ghosts. You could tell them to go in the attic or another room. And people do that. People in your neighborhood are making deals with ghosts. You can meditate, Ben Prague says, and somehow your thoughts will send them away. You can annoy them. This Lloyd guy, I wouldn't read any more of his stuff, but he said, ah, you can buy a bad book of corny knock-knock jokes and you know, tell knock-knock jokes and turn up your music really loud and they'll leave. I'm like, okay. Uh, and then Nancy Meyer said, you can visualize white and emerald and your visualizations will remove them from the house. But the big idea underneath all of this is that they're saying that these hauntings are real. Now, the Bible says that these actually aren't ghosts. This isn't a ghost of the dog scratching on the floor or breathing on the neck. And this is why it gets a bit scary. Because dead people aren't available for earthly visits. Luke 16, 19 through 31, tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. And one goes to a place we would call heaven. The other goes to a place we would call hell. There was no coming back. In fact, one of them was saying, please send the other to go back to earth and tell of what's gonna happen. Eh, Not available. You don't get to leave this place. There's no in-between. There's no purgatory. There's no lingering before you get to go to the other side. This is what the Bible says. But the experience, that experience of believing that there's a ghost there, that could be very real. It's just not a ghost. It's a demon. These beings that want you to fear and lead you away from Jesus, they are real. And demons want to influence you toward comfort that would be away from Christ. So if, if you want to take comfort that your loved one is still with you and it'll keep you from believing in this real afterlife that Jesus taught on, then the demons will support that and they'll help you believe in a loved one who's still in your house, comforting, breathing on your neck. Or they want to cause fear. They want to make you scared. And so you make deals with them. And how could you ever trust a God that isn't big enough to take care of the scary things in your house? So Ralph Martin says that not all psychics or spiritualistic phenomena can be exposed as fraudulent. There's a spiritual dimension that cannot be ignored. Authentic spiritists draw their power from the one the Bible calls a roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour, who is Satan. So when you're going through things with ghosts or anything, oftentimes people will go to a psychic, say this thing's happening. And the psychic sometimes will tell you exactly what's going on. And here's what you just need to be aware of that these psychics are not working off of like this unreal knowledge. Some of them are very possessed. Some of them are very in touch with reality through demonic influence. And they're able to tell you exactly and precisely things about you because there's a demon that knows all about you and wants to take you down and is whispering in their ear. But yet we don't like to think about those things. I would say don't ever, don't ever go to a psychic. Don't ever play with horoscopes. Don't ever play with tarot cards. You know what that is? That's opening a window to your house and letting the demons in. Like, come on in. 
And you think you're big enough and strong enough and bold enough to to play in this realm and not get swept in completely? Psychics themselves say people should not do Ouija boards. People should not play with tarot cards. It sounds like advertising to get them into their business, but it seems like these psychics actually care about people and think that they are professional enough to help them. This is not something to play with, and the non-Christian psychics are saying that. So how do we live? Wrapping up, how do we live? Satan and demons are real, ghosts aren't real, but maybe demons are gonna show up and I could give you all kinds of stories about stuff from before being a follower of Jesus to to after and, and how to work through that. We just don't have time for it this morning. How do we live knowing that there's an enemy that wants to destroy us and war against us? Well, first, you need to know God and your identity. You need to know God and your identity. Let me read to you Colossians 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses, you, okay, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. The rulers and authorities are the demons, the devils, He disarmed them. He took away their weapons and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You are a beloved child of God. If you've submitted to Jesus, you are God's. Nothing can take that away from you. No onslaught, no attack. No one can remove you from the love of God. And God has equipped you for battle. You might not feel it, but you're equipped for battle. You've been given this helmet of salvation, this breastplate, I can't talk anymore, it's going too long, breastplate of righteousness. You've been given this sword of truth and the shield of faith. You've been given these shoes of the gospel. Like you are ready. You are ready for whatever comes at you because your identity is secure. The world, the anti-God system is struggling, wondering who am I, what am I, how can I better myself? And God says, you're secure, I'm pleased with you. You don't need anything else. So know God in your identity. Second, know the truth of the past, present, and future of the devil. Remind him of this. Genesis 3.15, the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Satan, Jesus, this is what this is about. Satan's gonna bite Jesus' heel. Jesus is gonna crush his head. Your, your head's been crushed. Revelation 20, last book in the Bible. This devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever, that's literal. That's not apocalyptic words, forever. Romans 16, 20, one of my favorite verses. Teach your kids this verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's how Paul ends a letter. Forget sincerely. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet with most love, Dwight. Like, that's awesome. Because it's not just Jesus saying, I'm gonna crush Satan's head. He's gonna let every child come over and be like, push a little harder. 
Like, all right, Andrew Fulford, I like your laugh. Your turn, your foot, right? And it's like, kids, I used to ride over snakes when I was a kid, and I would go right behind the head. I loved it. (laughs) Confession time. Because the Lord made me a snake stomper. This is our destiny, embrace it. But when we're attacked, we get to remind him of that. You know, I'm tempted right now, but one day I'm gonna step on your head. One day you're not gonna exist anymore. And so though you might tempt me for the rest of my life to disbelieve and and struggle in this area, one day the Lord's gonna let me put my, my foot on your head and you're gonna be done. He invites us into this. Third, know the power that you have. You forget about the Holy Spirit so often. I know you do, because I do. The Holy Spirit lives in you, dwells in you. Jesus overcame the devil, cast out demons by the power of the Spirit. And so we're to be filled with the Spirit. This means every morning, Spirit, would you fill me? Would you fill me with you? Because when I'm full with you, I can't be filled with anything else. When I'm seeing Jesus straight on, I can't be lured into other lives because I'm gonna see them for what they are. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 18, be filled with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 says, walk with the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You wanna know how you stop getting drunk? You wanna know how you stop watching porn? You wanna know how you stop being addicted to success? You wanna know how you stopped abusing people? Walk with the Spirit, Hold his hand. Because when you want to do those things, be like, ah, that's actually the enemy. I don't want you to do that anymore. And I'm leading you into something far better. And you're like, okay. He wants to walk with you in these things. As you're about to revolt in sin, say, spirit, would you come with me? Here's something strange, maybe. When I work with guys in internet pornography and addiction, I'm like, okay, so you watch porn and then you're gonna masturbate. Okay, so as you're about to do that, just go ahead and pray real quick. Spirit, would you fill me and walk with me into this as I do this? And you're like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, there's a command in scripture to do that. So make sure just before you do it that, that you do it. And the spirit begins whittling away at guys because the spirit's helping them to overcome this, that there's something far better than this quick get off. This eternal enjoyment, 10,000 pleasures waiting for them and to be available now. And the spirit isn't one of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. I know I'm going long and I just don't care this morning because I think this stuff's important. So I'm sorry for your bladders. Lord, help their bladders. We're just going for it. This is non-cultural. You're not supposed to preach more than so many minutes. And I'm just like watching my, I don't care. I'm just going to shut off the timer. There we go. Know the snares of the devil. Fourthly, know the snares of the devil. Expect a subtle attack on God. If you start believing lies about who God is, that's probably not from you. Expect lies about your community. The church doesn't really care about you. They don't love you. They aren't there for you. Now, some of that might be true because we're still sinful. But when the enemy tells, or when you hear, you should just leave the church. It's about you and Jesus. That's nowhere to be found in scripture. That's a lie of hell. When you hear things about people in the church, I've heard this all the time. I hear things about people inside of the church. 
And what I do is instead of dwelling on them, be like, oh, did they really think that about me? I just go to them and I'm like, hey, weird, awkward question. Um, I thought this about you. Um, I thought you might be thinking this about me. Is this true? Did you ever say this? They're like, no, it's not true. I'm like, ah, good, thank you. And then I explain to them, not that I'm going crazy, but that the enemy's been lying to me about them and wants to cause division in the church this way. So go to people, verify whether it's true before you just believe and assume that something is true because he loves to lie to you. He'll lie to you about your family. He'll tell you all kinds of things about your spouse and your kids if you're married. He'll tell you all kinds of things about your parents. He'll highlight not that wonderful trip that you took, but how your dad never hugged you enough. And maybe that's true, but he'll highlight all the things that are wrong in your family because he wants to divide the family. He wants to get you alone. Predators wanna get people alone. And he is the ultimate predator. He wants to get you alone, get you out of the family of God, get you out of city group, get you out of change group so that he can focus on you and he can build you back up with his little lies. And then he wants to lie to you about self. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're really smart. You're really good. You're too big. You're too small. You're perfect size. Oh, you're just perfect. You're the standard for everyone. Don't run enough. You don't run fast enough. You run too slow. You run too fast. Like These are just strange things that he wants to be involved in. Any little way that he can push us toward ourselves and not Jesus. This is what he does. Get used to hearing voices. That should be normal for you. There are voices, the voice of the spirit and the voice of the enemy. And you need to be able to tell which one is which. And when lies come, you take them captive. You put them inside of a little cage and you're like, I don't know about you. I'm gonna put you in a cage and I'm gonna examine you. I'm gonna open my Bible. I'm gonna call my change group partner. I'm going to talk to my city group and, and show them this little thing in the cage. And they're like, that's a lie. That's not from God. And then you take it out and you kill it together. And when it comes back again, you put it in the cage, you examine it together again. Because the enemy just wants to pile them on so that you can't, you don't even know what's what. It's like spaghetti, right? It's just all connected. Fifth, almost done, really. Fifth, resist the devil. We're told to flee other things, like flee sexual immorality, but we're told to resist the devil. This means you don't have to fear. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We do this every night in our home. Every night we walk through our house, praying over kids. I got up the other night to go to the bathroom at night because like, Having little kids that get up 9,000 times in the night to pee has like reduced my already small bladder. Too much information. This is what happens when it goes over 50 minutes, right? Um, but as I'm getting up, my, my girls had been troubled by something recently. They've been saying there's something in their room. And instead of just being like, there's nothing in your room, we talk to our kids. There might be something in your room. And we actually have to pray against it and get it out. And so I saw something and you're like, oh, you were just you know, sleepy and whatever. Like, yeah, maybe. But I saw this little figure outside of their door and I'm going to, and I'm like, I am so tired. I need to pee. I'm not dealing with this tonight. Like, get out of my house. Like, you can't be here in the name of Jesus. And just left. And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna pee and go back to bed. And we all slept really good the rest of the night. But I'm just so tired. I don't run. You don't need to run. You don't need to be scared. Even if it gets crazy and like, 
It looks like the movies. You don't need to be scared. You have the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you and they are scared of him. And so you get to speak out against these things. We once brought our whole city group through our apartment because one of our kids was being tormented at night. And so we actually had, I think he was four or five at the time, we had him walk through our whole house praying against the evil one and that he would leave. And he did. It's teaching your kids to do this stuff. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. Resist him and he will flee. The last, let me mention this. This is part of a song by Martin Luther. And though this world will devil's filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fill, fell him. And that word above all earthly power is King Jesus. He causes for Satan to be cast away forever. And so the last point is that you cannot have a dynamic relationship with Jesus without being with Jesus. Discipline your body to be with Jesus. If you have to go to bed at seven o'clock at night to get up early to be with Jesus, do it. Jesus said, cut off whatever you need to cut off so that you don't lose me. Do that. And I'm not saying it has to be early in the morning, but make sure you're spending time with Jesus, not so that the devil can help you pat yourself on the back for it, but so that you can be filled with the spirit. The beauty and glory of Jesus can, can blind all of the lies, the shiny things that you want to walk into, that you walk into your day full of the spirit, ready for battle, not naive of what's going to come at you, but ready to not only believe for yourself, but also to talk to others of the belief that they can have. The darkness doesn't need to reign in our city anymore. This place doesn't have to be a place where the enemy plays all of his games. Montreal might become the most reached place in the entire world. And that's my prayer, the thing I'm fasting about. And what I'm calling for us is this little church to be about that we would believe that the light has cast out the darkness so much that we would go and live our lives in such a way that the enemy doesn't have a foothold in, but that we can talk and show and declare the goodness that we have a living God who's coming back to rule and reign over all things and change us for his glory for all time because he has a drawer on us too. Satan has a drawer, Jesus has a drawer. Jesus pulls open the drawer and he says, mine, you are mine and no one can snatch you from my hand. So let me pray. Jesus, you are here. You are with us. The enemy has no power, no rule, no reign in this place because your dominion is here. Would you take our city? Would you cause us to be a people that respond to you for what you've done and for who you are? Lord, thank you that you love he loved to change the darkest hearts. Lord, I felt my heart was the darkest heart in the whole world and you changed my heart. And so you can change hearts. If there are people here this morning that don't yet know you, would you cause them to see you and who you are? Would you cause them to submit their need this morning to you, King Jesus, that we would not leave here obsessed or ignorant about the enemy, but that we would leave obsessed with you. So Jesus, help us to respond to you for who you are and what you've done. We love you and we need you for everything. Amen.